if you have your, your Bible, open and find 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. If this, this is your first time in college Sunday school this summer, we're studying through 1 and 2 Samuel, also originally known as just the book of Samuel. It wasn't originally divided into two books. But um, chapter 17 is where I'm asking you to turn. This morning we're going to turn our attention to a, a, another very important section of the book of Samuel, which is chapters 16 through 20. That's our task to cover this morning, where in these chapters we are introduced to one of the most important people in the Bible, and I'm talking about David. Um, it is hard to overstate the significance of David, not just in the history of the ancient nation of Israel as their, as their greatest king, but in his significance in the whole redemptive story, um, his, the, the history that, of the Old Testament that leads us to and points us to the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work. Does that in a multitude of ways. Last week, just to pick up where, where we left off, last week we looked at King Saul. Basically, and we're not done with Saul, obviously, in our passage, our chapters this week and, and in future weeks as well. But last week we did kind of follow the arc of Saul's kingship uh, from the very first cry of the people, we want a king, we want a king like the nations around us who will fight our battles for us. Uh, and, and then the, the finding of Saul, long live the king, uh, all the way through his early successes, and maybe this is going to be great, but I don't know, to very, the very, right before the Lord removes the kingship from him, um, you know, his, his, his sin and his waywardness from the Lord. That's what we, we saw last week, up to that point where the Lord removed the kingship. He's still functionally king. He's still sitting on the throne. But the Lord has removed the, the kingship, his anointing from him as king. We're coming today to a particularly rich group of chapters in the story um, that not only just relate to us what happened in history, but like I said, foreshadows in so many different ways the work of Christ that's to come is encouraging ways. Um, just like it's been since the beginning, we can't read our whole text, so we're just going to read a portion of it uh, to get a little bit of the context and the, and the, and the feel for what we're going to study this morning. So I've asked you to turn to chapter 17, which is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, which is the battle between David and the Philistine Goliath. It's a little lengthy, but we're going to read the whole chapter. It's exciting anyway, so um, we're going to do that thing. Chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, follow along. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah. In Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in a battle, uh, in, in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. It's pretty epic. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. You don't know what that means. It's big. Uh, and he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's heavy. And he had a bronze armor 
uh, uh, he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. That's big. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, again, heavy, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for, your, for yourselves. It, that's, uh, that's irony too, right, isn't it? it? Didn't they choose a man for themselves to be king over them? Saul. He says, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight uh, with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel to this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul um, had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, the next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistines came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves. Carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man, Saul will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered to him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? <laughs> Was it not but a word? And he turned away uh, from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him as before. 
When the, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, um, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, but you're, you're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. Uh, but David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep um, for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear... And took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. That's boss. And if he and if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard. I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor and put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried to go in vain, and then tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I've not tested them. So David put them off. And then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And then the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field, basically calling David cursed. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet David, to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, 
As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son this boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, not just a good story, Lord. This is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word to us. And so we ask as we study this chapter and quickly study all those surrounding it, Lord, would you give us minds clearly to grasp the truth of these chapters that you would have us to see? Give us eyes to see it, minds to understand it. Would you give us hearts to embrace it? Would you give us wills to act upon what you encourage us to do through this story and these stories around it? Or would you give us all ears to hear the Spirit speaking through the Word this morning? Would you give me the help that I need to teach it clearly? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, like I said, there's a good bit to see. That's a long chapter. There's a lot to see in that one chapter, but we got four others to go with it, or three others. Anyway, uh, so I'm going to do my best with the time that we have. Not make any promises anymore. To try to give you some time at the end, I don't know how that's going to go. But if you're taking notes, here's how we're going to divide this up and think through it. So uh, first, we're going to think about the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed. That's just going to be from chapter 16, all right? The Lord's anointed, where we're introduced to David uh, there in chapter 16. We, we read of his, his anointing as king, even as another is still technically on the throne. The Lord's anointed, chapter 16. And then secondly, from chapter 17... And 18, mainly, we're going to see the anointed's opposition, the anointed's opposition from more than one source. Uh, we just read one of the sources in chapter 17, but there's more, the, the anointed's opposition. And then we're going to finish in chapters 19 and 20 quickly, thinking about the Lord's protection and preservation. Chapters 19 and 20, the Lord's protection and preservation. Um, things really worth thinking through. I hope by the time we're finished this morning, you don't just have a good grasp of the storyline of these chapters, but, but that you, you, you come away from the story of these chapters um, seeing how they fit in the whole storyline of Scripture. And why, why is that important to see? It's not just so you, go, so you come away going, man, the Bible's really cool, uh, or I just know more about the Bible. No, it's, it's, you, you, you see how this story in ancient history fits into a whole narrative of history, uh, a divinely orchestrated story, which should have you coming away with a deeper abiding confidence in the divine inspiration of Scripture, as well as through that, confidence in the trustworthy reality of the gospel. All right? So that's what I hope you get out of this today. So let's dive in for a closer look. First at chapter 16, where we're introduced to the Lord's anointed. We really need to go back to the last couple of verses of chapter 15, to get our bearings for what the Lord says as we enter chapter 16. Remember, back in chapter 15, verse 26, Samuel had told Saul the word of the Lord where he told him in chapter 15, verse 26, for you have, re to, to Saul, you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And then the final two verses of the chapter, beginning in verse 34, say... Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. 
Now let me say a quick word about that. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Um, we were already told back in verse 29 of chapter 15, if you look there and note that verse, where it says, the glory of Israel, that's capital G, we're talking about the Lord here, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So in the same chapter that it says, the Lord regretted, in that same chapter it says, but he's not a man who regrets. And so how do you fit these two together? You understand through Scripture's own testimony that when it says that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king, that is God accommodating himself to our ways of understanding things. Our finite language and minds could not ever perfectly capture the infinite. And so, because and it has to be that case, because what else would it mean? Literally to say that God regretted anything would, uh, would, would mean that he was incapable of foreseeing how Saul would turn out. Which to be incapable of foreseeing how Saul would turn out would mean that he's not omniscient. That he doesn't know all things. Another something that Scripture clearly says that God is. Uh, and so we know that's not the case. Verse 29 says that's not the case. So God says he regretted. And that's a way of communicating to us his displeasure with Saul and his reign, which was coming to an end. God was accommodating himself to our way of understanding. But chapter 15 didn't just end with God's regret. It also ends with Samuel's sorrow and grief over Saul, which is where chapter 16 begins. We don't know how much time passes, evidently a little bit of time, because God comes to Samuel in verse 1 and says, how long are you going to grieve? <laughs> how long are you going to be sad over Saul, Samuel? Since I've rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king. Now, you might remember that back in chapter 13, verse 14, God had already spoken through Samuel and, and, and told him a little bit, because in chapter 13, verse 14, Samuel told Saul in that verse, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and commanded him to be prince over his people, Israel. And I mentioned last week that when in that verse, when it says God has sought out a man after his own heart, he was speaking first and foremost about the next king being one of God's own choosing rather than one that the people would choose, right? It's one who comes out of God's heart. And that's exactly what the Lord reiterates to Saul here in, uh, to Samuel in verse 1, uh, that, that this next king that God will raise up is one that God is raising up and providing for himself. And very much unlike how it went down with Saul, Samuel does not know who this is going to be. He doesn't know. Remember when, when Saul, when the people were going to choose Saul and Saul was going to be the guy, remember that God's quiet providence was working out how it was going to go down and he caused uh, Saul's father's donkeys to go missing and and Saul and his servant are going out looking for uh, the donkeys, and they just happen to show up near the town where Samuel is, and they just happen to know he's a seer. Uh, let's go ask him. Maybe he can prophesy and tell us where the donkeys are. And when, when they meet Samuel, Samuel tells them, oh, your, your father's donkeys have been found. But then he said to Saul, don't you know that all Israel's looking for you? How did he know that? Because the day before, God had already revealed to Samuel Two guys are going to come. Here's who they are. Here's why they're coming. 
he's going to be king. Here's what you're to say to him. Like Samuel knew all of this ahead of time. Uh, But here, the Lord tells Samuel that he's chosen another king for himself, and he tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem. Now, Samuel's Saul's still on the throne technically, and, he, and he, he fears what Saul might do to him if he finds this thing out. Verse 4 says that he goes anyway trembling, but the Lord had revealed to him at least the family from which this man is going to come, but not the man. Why, why all this secrecy? So that it's, it's unmistakable that the Lord is the one who's not with the influence of anything else. The Lord is, is raising up this man. It's, and then you have this famous scene where... Only the Lord knows who it is. Neither Samuel nor Jesse, the father of the family, knows which of his sons is going to be king. So they start parading Jesse's sons by one by one. And they begin with the oldest son, Eliab. Notice very specifically, though, what Samuel, the Lord tells Samuel in verse 7 when, this, when Eliab comes first to stand. He says, the Lord tells Samuel in verse 7, uh, very important verse in the Bible, do not look. On his appearance or on the height of his stature, for I have rejected him. I have rejected him. Who is the him? I got, you know, it's a little, it could be a little fuzzy. You got Eliab coming before you, and God says, Don't look on his appearance, don't look on his stature. But then it says, For I have rejected him, which makes you think of Saul. So who, who is the him? Is it Eliab or it's Saul? I think the him is both. I think it's doing double duty. Obviously, it harkens back to Saul, who was chosen for his appearance, who was more handsome than anybody in Israel, who was head and shoulders taller than anybody in Israel. But I think it's also referring to Eliab, who you gather was li- also likely very tall. And hence, Samuel thought in verse 6, surely this is the guy. And the Lord is warning Samuel not to make the mistake that the people made when Saul was their choice. And that issues into one of the most important verses in Scripture. It's the second half of verse 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord does not judge as man judges or do things according to our expectations. He works his plans so that no one but him gets the glory and the praise. What we're seeing in this choosing of David and even in the subsequent chapters, is a, is a living out of Hannah's prayer from chapter 2, where Hannah prophesied great reversals of things in that prayer in chapter 2. Uh, and, and one of the things she, she revealed that the Lord would work, quote, not, and she said, not by might shall man prevail. And so it, it's just like they, you see this, it, the king is not going to be the guy that you expect. It's going to be a, some that, somebody that you don't expect. They go down the line of all the brothers, beginning with the oldest, who was the favored son according to tradition. But one son after another passed by, and none were the one that the Lord had chosen. David was the youngest of the sons, a lowly shepherd from Bethlehem, no less. And again, they were, this, was, this was all contrary to, to worldly expect, expectations. The Lord was going to choose this one to be king, later to make a covenant with him. You might jot, jot down this note, Psalm 89 Psalm 89 extols this counterintuitive wisdom of God. Uh, Psalm 89, when it says, it says in verse 20, God says in verse 20, I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. And in verse 26 says, 
and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. When Psalm 89 says that the Lord was making David the firstborn, well, clearly he was the youngest, not the not the firstborn. So when Psalm 89 says, God says, I will make him the firstborn, he's using that term figuratively. First uh, Samuel 16 says, David is not the firstborn, Eliab is. So when God says in Psalm 89, he says, I'm making David the firstborn, he meant it figuratively to refer to status, which is confirmed why it says, I'll make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. To understand that, why do I point that out? That's going to help you when you come to the New Testament. That's going to help you when you come to like Colossians 1.15, and it says of Jesus that he is the firstborn of all creation. Right? And, 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 and that way when the Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door on Saturday morning, and you start talking to him about Jesus, and you might want to point out, hey, well, he's the Colossians 1.15, they're going to say, no, 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 no. They're going to say, he's the firstborn of all creation. That means he was the first one created. And then he's a creature like the rest of us, but then through him, God created everything else. You can say, no, 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 no. That's not what that is saying at all. You can go to Psalm 89. You can go to 1 Samuel 16, and you can, you can show that David was not literally the firstborn, but figuratively the firstborn, the highest of the kings of heaven. And you can say, like that, this is saying of Jesus, he is the highest of all creation. It's not a literal creation. He's the inheritor of all things. Well, 1 Samuel 16 says that David was ruddy. <laughs> ruddy. Uh, reddish in complexion, I guess. Uh, uh, beautiful eyes, was handsome. And further description is given to him down in verse 18 when he's described as a Bethlehemite. He's skillful in playing music. He's a man of valor, a man of war, stopper of lions and bears, prudent in speech, man of good presence. Lord is with him. Though the process has clearly shown he was not chosen for these reasons. Um. The Lord does not look on outward appearance, but at the heart. And, and the Lord told Samuel to anoint David as king. And in this way, the process was a little bit like the one with Saul, where, remember, Saul was anointed privately before it was made public later on. And, you, and, and, and the same is happening here uh, in, in David. And you can understand why, because practically, Saul is still king. We're reminded of that in this chapter. So when Samuel anoints David... Verse 13 says, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. This is not to say this is the day that David was born again, right? But that the Spirit was anointing him to be king, to be king. That's in keeping with what we see elsewhere in Scripture. Remember in the Old Testament, you see different people for different specific purposes being anointed with the Spirit, whether it's a craftsman to build the tabernacle, or it's, a, or it's a prophet to prophesy, or it's a civil ruler or a judge or a king to rule. And that's confirmed here because just as soon as you see, read that the, the Spirit rushed upon David when he was being anointed king, you read in the next verse, verse 14, that the Spirit departed from Saul because the kingship had been taken away from him. Right? Saul was being removed from, as king, so the Spirit departed from him to anoint the one that was being raised up as king, David. That is precisely why David, by the way, in Psalm 51, 
when after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and conspired for her husband to be killed, he prayed, among other things to the Lord, he's prayed, take not your Holy Spirit from me. He's not saying, please don't let me lose my salvation. He's saying, don't take the throne away from me like I had seen with Saul, right? David prayed that because he saw what happened to Saul, which we begin reading about in verse 14, that not only did the Holy Spirit leave Saul, but it says an evil spirit, a harmful spirit, began to terrify and terrorize him. And that begins the next phase of these chapters, which not only the Lord introduces us to the Lord's anointed, but to the opposition that he faces. So think with me next for a minute about the, the, the anointed's opposition. You get the first hint of opposition against David at the end of chapter 16 when the evil spirit begins to terrorize Saul. But it didn't initially manifest itself against David because David was brought in because of his gift of music to, to play for Saul when it, whenever he was troubled by the spirit to soothe him. And verse 21 says, Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. So things don't look too bad at that point. But over the next couple of chapters, David, who has already now secretly been anointed as king, is going to face opposition that I think foreshadows the opposition that Christ himself would face as David's fulfillment. All right? The first one we encounter is, is one, the one we read about at the beginning is David's fight against Goliath. And the second is going to be the unfolding opposition that David faces from Saul himself. And I want to propose that both of these mirror and foreshadow uh, the opposition that Christ himself would face in his life and, and ministry. Let's think about the significance of the opposition Goliath brought. We read that story. The first thing you're met with in chapter 17 are the praises of Goliath. This, this Philistine had come uh, to war against Israel. Nothing new here, but this time it said they had a champion who would fight for them. He's called a champion in verse 4. Champion in verse 23, verse 23 just goes overboard. The champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name. I mean, like, and by the way, he's from Gath, all right? You'd have to be a super careful reader and rememberer of all things you ever read in the Bible to just casually pick this up. But if you did turn back to Joshua, you don't have to turn, but note it. Joshua 11, verses 21 to 23, when they, and during that conquest of the, of the land, they, they relocated some of their conquered peoples, the Nephilim being part of them. Some of them were relocated to Gath. So it's very likely that Goliath was a descendant of the Nephilim, often translated as giant people, which would explain his height of over nine feet tall and describes the incredible size and weight of his armor. And he taunted Israel and their God. And what else do we see in chapter 17? Look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. One translation says they were terrified. Did you notice there that it wasn't just the people who were terrified? Saul too? Saul and all Israel were afraid. And in this story, you would think Saul would be the man to take on Goliath. I mean, Goliath said... Choose for yourself a man who will come and fight me. Well, the whole story up to that point was that they had done just that. They chose this man to be their king who would fight our battles for us. And not to mention, we're told how big 
Goliathers were, were told all the time how tall Saul was. Head and shoulders taller than anybody else in the whole nation. So maybe Saul should have been out there fighting Goliath. But from all outward appearance, he, like all the people, was terrified. In fact, we learn later in the chapter that Saul was offering a reward to this man and his family, whoever kills Goliath. Saul is hoping, praying that somebody's going to come along. It's a pitiful sight. Well, while he's bringing food to his brothers at the battle, you know the story, we just read it. David, the Lord's anointed, hears what Goliath is saying and shouting against the Lord and his people. There's no fear in David's heart. And you know the story. David needs no armor. He takes five smooth stones, needing only one of them. So it's useless, as some preachers do, to try to add significance to this stone means that and this stone, you know, one stone means faith, and one stone means what? It, he didn't even need the other four. He just used one stone. So they don't mean anything. They're just stones. Anyway, he plants a stone in Goliath's head, and he collapses to the ground dead. Now let me back up a little bit and point something out that I didn't yet. Earlier when I was talking about Saul, uh, Goliath's armor, look back at verse 5. It said he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. Other translations get that a bit more accurately. I think that's, yeah. Instead of, other translations, some will say, instead of saying he had a coat of mail on, it will say more literally, he had scale armor on. Scale armor. It, that, that's what it literally says. It was, it was a body armor that looked like scales on the body which meant in a real sense, Goliath didn't just look like a giant. He looked like a serpent. He looked like a snake. We've already had allusions to that when Saul faced a guy named Nahash, whose name meant serpent or snake. The biblical, I think the biblical imagery here goes deeper than this just being a really big guy with a really big sword, but he's one who represents the opposition of Satan himself against the Lord's anointed and his kingdom on earth. And as the, as the Lord's anointed, the one after God's own heart is anointed king, the, the first battle he faces is indicative of the opposition Satan's going to have against him to oppose his reign and his righteousness. David recognized that this was a spiritual contest. Notice verse 43 again. It says, verse 43 said that, that this Philistine cursed David by his gods. And then David replies in verses 45 to 47, I'm going to, uh, skip a few things. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. The, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. That all the earth, skipping down, the, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, skipping down, and that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And I love how it says in verse 48 that David is so confident of these things and so confident of these things in the Lord, he ran quickly to the battle. Much like Jesus, right at the outset of his ministry, would encounter Satan's opposition when he was 40 days out in the wilderness. The story of David and Goliath picturing ahead of time what Christ would do for us is of the Lord's anointed fighting the battle and slaying the serpent for us. Because who are we in this story? We're, we're, we're not David. We're, we're the ones with Saul, terrified, hoping someone will come and fight our battle for us. Well, David chopped off Goliath's head. That's an interesting sort of repeat of Dagon back in chapter 4. David, uh, Dagon fell over 
his head and had been removed from the statue. But David stands over this giant serpent and crushes his head. That's what you see here, right? Illustrating something the Messiah would come day, one day come and achieve in a full and final way. But Goliath isn't the only opposition that David faced. He also faced it from Saul. Um, before we get to the opposition of, of Saul, I just want to point out, if you're looking at chapter 18, I want to point out these early verses of chapter 18 that talk of the, of the dedication of Jonathan, Saul's son, his dedication to, to, to David. Jonathan, again, by all outward appearances, would be the next in line to be king, right? His dad is on the throne. Jonathan's his son. He's the next in line for the throne. But all you read of him is of his allegiance to David, of his love for David. Three times in these verses, in verse 1, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan, who would be outward appearance, the next in line for the throne, later in chapter 23, we're not going to go there this morning, Jonathan, the heir apparent, said to David, you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. In other words, all you see Jonathan doing is, uh, pre. well, thinking about the last week, first thing you see is Jonathan prefigures David and the battles he would win. Remember, Jonathan won these crazy battles. He he beat the Philistines all by himself, right? He's, he's prefiguring David before David comes. And then when David hits the scene, it's as if Jonathan is constantly saying, he must increase, I must decrease. It's like Jonathan is prefiguring John the Baptist for us, the forerunner to the Christ. I think Jonathan is a type and foreshadow of that, of that role that John the Baptist would play. It's a beautiful picture. But back to the opposition of Saul. Saul was filled with jealousy uh, toward David when after the battle with Goliath, they, they made songs about him. Uh, chapter 18, verse 7, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was enraged. Not to spend too much time on this because this kind of thing is going to continue in future chapters and Greg's still got to have something to say for next week. Um, but twice in these chapters, once in chapter 18, once in chapter 19, uh, Saul tries to kill David with a spear. And both times we're told that it was preceded with this harmful, evil spirit rushed upon Saul, and he tried to kill him with his spear. That's chapter 18, verse 10, chapter 19, verse 9. An evil spirit put murderous desires into Saul's heart against David. And again, in my reading, that is reminiscent ahead of time of Judas against the Lord Jesus, Right? Judas followed Christ for three years with no apparent animosity. Saul loved David greatly early on. But in the end, an evil spirit, a murderous spirit, put murderous designs in Saul's heart against David, just as it happened with Judas to betray Christ and bring him to his murder. There will always be opposition to the people of God who follow in the footsteps of Christ. It's foreshadowed here by David. But in all of it, the Lord sovereignly worked his plans to protect and preserve his anointed. Think about that with me as we bring this to a close. The Lord's protection and preservation. 
We see two important things at this juncture of 1 Samuel. We already saw the devotion of Jonathan to David, but the other is his marriage to Saul's daughter, Michael, because he had defeated Goliath. And both of these relationships come into play in these chapters for the preservation and protection of David. First, after the second time that Saul tried to kill David with his spear, his new wife, Michael, helped David escape at night, knowing that if you don't, you're gonna be, they're going to kill you the next day. So she helped him deceive the authorities. She makes a, a dummy and puts it in the bed with, like, goat hair and everything to make it look like David's still in the bed. I'd hate to know my hair looks like goat hair. But uh, she said that, uh, yeah, he's sick, he can't get up. Well, David had already fled, right? She deceived them, but in an admirable way. She didn't, uh, you know, she's like a little, she's like a little uh, Rahab hiding the spies, you know, at this point in the story. But chapter 20, Jonathan helps to protect David too. Um, there was a banquet where Saul and David were supposed to be present. David didn't show up, and Jonathan helped devise a plan so that if Saul grew angry at David's absence, Jonathan would get the word to David, and he could flee again. So Jonathan made up a story to try to, uh, explain David's absence to Saul. And Saul even tried to take Jonathan's life for that, but in the end, David was able to escape. The point is, the Lord was the one who raised up David. Um, there was nothing that was going to prevent God's purposes for David coming to pass. There's, there's a whole lot more to the story still to come, but that's plenty for us to think about this morning. You have six entire minutes, six of them, Use them wisely around your tables. Just think about, maybe uh, reflect on what you've learned in this passage. I'll come and close this in prayer in a moment.